Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to Galatians, the book of Galatians, where the very very end, chapter 6, we started a journey 16 weeks ago, a little bit over 16 weeks ago, but we took a couple of breaks, and we will finish the book of Galatians this morning in our 16th installment of this sermon series. I hope you had a great time with your family this weekend. They say, never talk about politics or religion over the Thanksgiving dinner table, at least not without a few drinks uh, beforehand, iced tea, sweet tea, that kind of thing. Um, I have a spiritual gift. A lot of you know this. Some of you might not know this. One of my spiritual gifts is a unique one. I'm not sure there's a ton of people in the world with it. It's to make people mad online. I, uh, some of you who are Facebook friends with me perhaps have seen this uh, happen in real life. And um, so most Thanksgiving dinners, people are trying to avoid talking about politics, okay? People are trying to avoid talking about religion, things of that nature. Um, At my Thanksgiving dinner, uh, there was a palpable feeling of trying to avoid the word millennial. Um, If that doesn't mean anything to you, it's because a few days ago I started a small controversy over the value of millennials in today's society on Facebook. I had read a couple articles kind of blaming millennials for destroying all kinds of things. And I just recently read a book examining kind of the larger socio-historical phenomena that created what we call the millennial. And I'd learned a lot of fascinating things like um, millennials are the the best educated generation um, in American history and a lot of other pretty remarkable statistics like that. Now, it's not all great, right? One of the reasons we're so educated is because there aren't that many jobs for us. So we go get a bachelor's degree like people before us. There's no job, so we're like, let's get a master's degree. There's no job, so we're like, let's get a doctor's degree. So we've got a lot of degrees in the closet. Um, but nevertheless, we can say, hey, we, we did a lot of schooling together. Um, and lo and behold, it uh, came up. And so this was the first time in my life that a Facebook post of mine caused a 30, 45-minute, very tense, very palpably tense Thanksgiving uh, dinner conversation. What I learned through talking to people about the different generations is that one of the things many people agree on, Gen Xers and Millennials, is that the baby boomers perhaps were not the best. Now, don't say that at a table full of baby boomers because baby boomers are not on Facebook to defend themselves, but they're very much at the dinner table uh, to defend themselves. And um, I'm lucky and fortunate to have a beautiful family, a very supporting family. We love to make fun of each other, but we support and love one another. And it was a weekend of Thanksgiving for me as I was looking out and seeing all these people who've supported me, who would support me, you know, if the need arose. And I come to church on this Sunday morning as we end this book of Galatians, and I'm reminded of another miracle, perhaps a much larger and more spectacular miracle than the gift of family which is the gift of new family, spiritual family. For Paul, the Apostle Paul, and for the New Testament, the reality of the church, the reality of human beings, you and I, 
different in opinions and beliefs and lifestyles and experiences gathered together in worship and in life is one of the most remarkable miracles the world has and will ever see. It's supposed to be one of these things Jesus calls a city on a hill where people from all over the world might look and marvel at what kind of a community this is, at how this community treats one another, at what this community does with one another, at what kind of promise this community shows for what humanity could be like through the transformation and the power of the Holy Spirit. As we finish up the book of Galatians, Paul is going to transition from some of the big themes he's been talking about, like the power of Christ and the gospel and the transformation of the Spirit and what it means as individuals to walk in the Spirit and keep up step with the Spirit and live by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. And he's going to zero it down into what that means for a community. Paul was writing to a community of churches in Galatia. And this morning, through the Spirit, Paul speaks to you and I, a community of believers in Sugarland, Texas. Let's read together Galatians chapter 6. We'll read the whole chapter. We'll finish out this book study together. Galatians chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're an underliner, if you're on your phone and highlighting, verse 2 would be a great one to do so. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But... Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, we're going to stop there. We're going to take up an offering. Okay, there's a very inspired verse by Paul. Verse 6 here. No, no laughter. Okay, we'll keep going. We will take up an offering for this later. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And now as he wraps up his letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul takes the pen from the hand of the scribe, and he finishes it himself. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision 
counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Let's start towards the end. Paul mentions here, in closing up his argument, that circumcision counts for nothing, uncircumcision counts for nothing. What counts for Paul, what's always counted for Paul, is new creation. It's the fact that a death has occurred. And because of that death, a new world has opened up. Now, it doesn't always seem like a new world has opened up. It often feels like we're trapped in this old world. It often feels like our our possibilities are limited by the possibilities of this old world. But for Paul, something dramatic and decisive took place on a cross outside of the city in Jerusalem where a crucifixion happened. And because of that crucifixion, the world will never be the same. Paul mentions three deaths here as he closes in his own handwriting. He talks about the death of Jesus Christ. He talks about the death of the world. And he talks about his own death to the world. It's this new creation that he has been imploring the churches in Galatia to live into, to lean into, to explore, to build up their lives as a part of. Paul's been talking about the Holy Spirit. And in this past passage we looked at, he's implored the believers to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to let the Spirit guide them. And now he says, as he closes up this letter, that the Spirit should be allowed to continue his work at creating a city on a hill, a group of people, a local group of believers like you and I, who might be able to do and experience and bear witness to a new world that's been created because of Christ. Let's look at some of the things he instructs this congregation. He says, if one of you is caught in any transgression, so if among the course of worshiping together and living together and praying together, meeting together, doing some business together, if one of you is caught in a transgression, then someone who is spiritual, capital S spiritual, someone who's walking by the Spirit, who's keeping in step with the Spirit, then they should take out on the responsibility of restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. Notice all of the qualifiers that he puts on this um, command to what we might call discipline inside of the church, to help someone who's, seen, who's, who's gone astray to see the error of their way. He says this should be done in a spirit of gentleness. It should be done by someone who's being led by the Spirit. It should be done by someone who's not conceited, who's aware of his own faults. It should be done by someone who is keeping close watch on themselves. Paul seems to be echoing here Jesus' instructions in Matthew 7, where he says, hey, before you talk about the speck in your brother's eye, why don't you rent a mirror and work on the log in your own eye? But for Paul, the Christian community is nothing if it's not a community that can help one another. Paul seems to be aware, as 
as well as the New Testament, that the Christian life, the new creation Jesus has come to create, involves the community. In fact, it's, it's, it's inherently communal. There is no city on a hill with one person sitting on a lawn chair on a hill. He says, if you see a brother in transgression, seek in gentleness to restore them. This word restore does not mean punish. It's actually a medical term. It's, it's what a doctor would have used um, to speak about in the first century if they needed to set a bone in order to let it heal. What Paul's speaking of is probably not somebody watching a brother or sister in Christ make one sin or make one mistake and then deciding to write a blog post, call a board meeting, have an annual business meeting of the congregation. He's probably instead watching someone slowly drift. And this is, again, not legal terms. It's not that they've broken a law and need to be punished. It's that their bones are breaking. And they need to be set in order that they might be healed. And so Paul says, look after one another and take care of one another. St. Augustine once said that nothing proves whether a person is truly spiritual like the way that that person handles another person's sin. That if you want to know how capitalist spirit-led someone is, Watch how they interact with someone else who's stuck in or caught in or busted in a sinful action or a sinful pattern or activity. If the interaction is characterized by insults, this is a person walking by the flesh. If the interaction is characterized by a desire to liberate and heal and seek freedom, then this is a person who is walking by the capital S Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments on this um, first passage here in Galatians 6, where we get, I think, in verse um, 2 here, the primary command of the church, which is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Throughout Galatians, Paul's been saying people under the Spirit, people who have faith in Christ, they have no law. They have no law against them. The law of Christ, though, the way of Christ, what it looks like to walk in the way of Christ, looks like someone who looks out at their brothers and sisters, sees a burden, and decides to bear it. This is indeed, I think, the most fundamental difference between the church, between the community of believers, and any other community that exists in the world whether it be family, neighborhood, civic, corporate. It's that when the church looks out and they see someone with a problem, when they see someone carrying something weighty, they don't see that person as an object to be manipulated or to feel sorry for or to be taken advantage of. They see that as a person in which they have room to place that weight on their own back. Bear one another's burdens and so keep the entire law of Christ. It's by bearing burdens, by suffering, and by enduring with each other that you and I truly become a family. That you and I truly become more than a club, more than a a religious organization, more than a lecture hall or a concert. What makes a church a church 
as human beings who sit across from one another and take on the task difficult, time-consuming, frustrating, confusing, of bearing burdens. The word he uses here for burdens has to do with um, a difficulty um, that someone needs to carry, often imposed by a third party, like a long and heavy work day, like a long and heavy pack. You and I all live lives where sometimes other people can make our lives difficult, where, where you and I can be given a burden uh, that we did not choose to do. In fact, email often works like this. Uh, the best description I ever heard of email was, email is the to-do list someone else gets to give you. You open up your email inbox, and you're like, wow, I didn't know I had so many things I had to do for other people today. But now I have this, this new to-do list to do. For the Christian, for the spirit-filled person, when they look out at someone else, a brother and sister in Christ, they see someone whose burden they should bear. Now there's a few things that are true and have to be true about this command to bear one another's burdens. The first is that your burden will never be able to be borne by somebody else if no one knows about it. If we went through the room, all of us today, this morning, made it very uncomfortable. We all are carrying burdens. Some of them are pretty big. Maybe bigger than we would have ever imagined. Some of them are pretty small. I'll, I'll take those ones. I'll, I'll put those ones on my back. Many of us, though, are trained in a world in which, from the very earliest age, we're told not to be a burden to other people. Do you want a job? Don't be a burden to your boss. Do you want to get a promotion? Don't be a burden. Do you want to be a good student? Don't be a burden to your teacher. I'm a professor. That one works a little bit. Do you want to be a good family member? Don't be a burden to the rest of your family. If the church is anything, it's the one place where we are begging you be a burden. Because this is the one place where your burdens can be borne. Where someone can put that on their back and help you. This command, like many others in the scriptures, goes along with it an inherent need for community. So many of the commands of the New Testament can't happen by individuals. Think of forgiveness. We read the scriptures and Jesus tells us to forgive one another. You can't forgive one another unless you are in relationship with someone who has wronged you. You can't bear someone else's burden unless you are in a relationship with someone else who has a burden in which for you to bear. When I look out at our church, when I look at different churches around the community, around the nation, I truly see this as one of the distinctives of the church, one of the things that separates the church from other organizations. In fact, just in a room like this, I can imagine that most of us have probably had burdens that someone else took off of our backs here in this room. We could take a second and look around and see who, who wore that burden who took that weight off of us. Paul says, bear each other's burdens. And in that way, 
in that way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, he, he tells us to um, keep watch over ourselves, that we don't get tempted. He says, don't think too much about ourselves. And then he says something kind of contradictory. The first few times I read this, I had, I, had, I had a hard time trying to figure out how these go together. Verse 2 and verse 5, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then in verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. I can read verse 5 and think, okay, this is up to me. I've got my load to carry. They've got their load to carry. Let's just all do our best at doing this. The reason the, the translation you have in front of you uses two different words, burden and load, is because they're actually two different words in the Greek. The one for load is, is more like um, what we would think of like a backpack, cargo, if you will. Now, I would want to suggest the best reading of this verse here in, 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 in verse 5 is each one will have to bear his own load. The load that you are called to bear is that which will fit the burdens of the people around you. What you one day will need to give an account for is the empty backpack on your back. When you had a brother next to you or a sister next to you who had a burden that they were carrying, who had a mortgage they couldn't pay, had a a marriage that wasn't working, or kids that they couldn't quite get to, or who, who just couldn't really ever figure out how to pray, couldn't ever get into that habit of praying or, or reading the scripture or whatever else it might be. The miracle of the church is the miracle of people who have been so transformed by the Holy Spirit that we're able to bear the burdens of one another. This is the new creation. I think that Paul is urging the churches in Galatia to take full advantage of. And a person who, who comes to church to listen to a sermon, and a person who comes to church to hear some music, and a person who comes to church to, to cross that off their list, and who never finds their load filled up with the burden of somebody else, is I think a person who's going to have to give account a person who perhaps has deceived themselves a person who perhaps has no reason to to boast he then talks about those who lead the community he says that the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches we're fairly certain in the new testament that the first professional ministry occupation there was was that of teaching. People have busy lives now, just like they had busy lives then. And so while there's no exporting learning the Word of God, and there's no exporting discipling your children, and there's no exporting the work of missions, there are seemingly, and have always been, those who have been called to take upon themselves extra study in order to teach the congregation, in order to assist them, in order to, in a sense, help them skip a few steps towards their knowledge of the triune God and his, his drama of redemption. Now, our church has, has always done a great job of this. Um, I, I read this verse 
And I think through almost 10 years now in February is how long I've been here. The third of my life. A little weird for me. A little scary for me. And I'm not sure that anyone's ever withheld a good thing from me. I'm not sure that that there's ever been a good thing that's been uh, withheld, that's not been been shared. I would want to expand this. It's easy to to be on stage or to get a mic or to, to have your voice recorded online. It's another thing, though, to think through the people who teach our children on Sunday morning and the people who work the sound booth on Sunday morning and the people who sing and the people who put out the chairs and put up the chairs and the call to the congregation, what a spirit-filled congregation looks like. is the people who take care of those individuals. There's the people who who don't see a good thing and keep it to themselves, but instead commit to sharing them with all. Paul then gives a warning. He says, don't be deceived. It's easy to deceive ourselves. He says, God's not mocked. And then he uses a very popular metaphor that you find throughout the scriptures, that of reaping and sowing, that of putting seed into the ground and and getting plants out of the ground. Is that right, Jason and Chris? I think, okay, I think that's right. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Most of the time when I've taught the passage we looked at last week, where we look at the works of the flesh and we look at the fruit of the Spirit, the number one danger is that people have deceived themselves. And they've spent years and years and years reaping one thing, and yet they have this remarkable confidence that they're going to sow a completely different thing. And so they put into the ground anger, and they put into the ground idolatry, and they put into the ground rivalries, divisions and envy and strife and jealousy. And they imagine that one day, blossoming out of the ground, like a beautiful flower, will be the spirit of eternal life. And Paul here, as lovingly as he can, says that's just not how things work. It's those who, it's those who reap those who pour into, those who sow things of the Spirit, that reap those things of the Spirit of eternal life. One of the ways that, that we could say this is that people don't accidentally find themselves in a healthy and growing and beautiful spiritual life. And if they do, it's a it's a far it's an exception. It's an unusual thing. If you were to take, I think, someone in your life who you admire and model, there's many in front of me right now, 
and you were to, to wonder what's the secret sauce to their spiritual success, I think you'd see a lot of boring things. I think you'd see a lot of time. I think you'd see a lot of discipline. I think you'd see a lot of waking up early to read Scripture. I think you'd see a lot of commitment to doing family devotions, even when the kids are crazy and the job's been crazy. I think you'd see a lot of discipline, of prayer, even when the time's not there, even when the attitude's not right. The life of the Spirit is a life of constant reaping and constant sowing. And Paul's not unaware that this is not sometimes an exhausting journey. Not sometimes something that, that, that makes us want to quit or at least take a, a temporary time out. I think that's why he, he follows up immediately with this. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good. We live in a time in which sometimes we, we sow the Spirit, but we don't necessarily see the reaping of spiritual things. And on the other hand, sometimes we see other people sow things of the flesh, and we don't necessarily see them reaping things of the flesh. And it's easy to sit back, and it's easy to breathe, to get distracted, and to grow weary, to get exhausted. And Paul says, don't grow weary. For in the right season, you'll reap as long as you, as long as you don't give up. He says, though the, then as we have the opportunity, as we have the opportunity, he says, let's do good to everyone. Let us do good to everyone, not just our friends, not just those who do or can do good to us. Let's do good to everyone. And then he, he adds a line here that's, that's, that's caused some confusion over the years. He says, first to the household, first to each other. And there's, there's long been tension between this, right? Should we, should we take care of people outside of the church? Should we only take care of people inside of the church? What if we don't have much left over after we take care of people inside of the church? I think that the principle that, that maybe he is getting at here in a sense is that you should think globally and then attempt to act, or think locally, excuse me, and then attempt to act globally. I think this is part of being a city on a hill. I think this is part of being a witness. Um, we, we could use, again, examples like forgiveness. Christ calls us to, to forgive one another. And if, if you and I can't forgive one another, what shot in the world do we have to forgive drivers on 59 who cut us off? What shot do we have to forgive the people at our workplaces, people in other parts of the country, the people in other parts of the world? If you and I can't sacrifice some money and some time to take care of someone else's burden, I mean, what shot do we have to have that mindset, and that ability, and that resource to take care of others? I've mentioned before, I think, one of the, the dangers of Christian social activism, and this is true not just of Christians, but 
particularly of Christians, is um, sometimes called the politicize. We, we politicize everything. So if there's an issue we don't like in the world, our knee-jerk instinct is to fix it or to engage it through politics. And both sides do this. So your far-right Christians do this. There's something they don't like. I'm going to write a letter to a senator. And, and the far-left Christians do this. So there's something we don't like. I'm going to write a letter to the senator. Or I'm going to vote. And they're going to spend weeks arguing over the merits of metaphors like waves, tsunamis, drops, puddles, colors. Instead of, perhaps, what if there was a problem with poverty? Instead of arguing macro, microeconomics, a group of people in Sugarland, Texas said, let's fix poverty in this room right here. It's not that impressive. Not a lot of people. Let's fix it. And then once we've fixed it here, maybe we can move outside of our doors. We start, we act locally, and, and then we can think and move globally. Paul says, let us do good. Let us not give up. Let us not grow weary. We need to have confidence in the work of the Spirit now, in the work of the Spirit in the future. Paul is uh, aware that exhaustion and and fatigue, these are real challenges for people who follow Jesus. That's particularly hard sometimes to continue on the right track when the season of the harvest never seems to quite arrive. But in light of all of this, Paul wants one thing to fuel us, one thing to center us, one thing to serve us the foundation of, on which we stand, and that is new creation. That is a resurrected man. That is the power and the presence of the Spirit at work in and among and through us. And I think Paul, as he writes and closes to these churches in Galatia, has these warnings, but I think he writes with optimism. Because I think the Spirit is the Spirit of optimism. It's a Spirit of hope. It's a Spirit that would say, if we would just do our job, nothing too impressive. No one here is being called to be Hercules. But if we would do our job, if we could commit today, I mean, if we could just make one promise, if we passed around a contract that was legally binding somehow, and we said, I promise, for a week, for a month, for a year, it's hard to make these long-term commitments. We move. Church is a little bit different in our world, right? Just because we, we go places and we move and we travel so often. But just dream for one moment with me. Imagine for one moment with me. What would it look like if you and I committed to fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens? That when you were sick, we gathered around you. That when you were in financial trouble, we rallied around you. That you were in spiritual trouble, We prayed for you. We were there for you. 
I'll close the sermon this morning. Maybe the first time I've ever closed a sermon in 10 years this way. Here's my biggest regret as a pastor. Here are the things that keep me up at night. The, the people I know and the letters that I'll get every now and then. No one writes a letter. I don't know, an email. Who, for what I think are incorrect reasons, tell me they didn't think they belonged at our church. They didn't, they didn't feel like, they wouldn't use this kind of words, they didn't feel like that was the type of person who would be able to find their burdens being born at our church. And I think part of that is perhaps because we don't celebrate as much all the ways that we do do those things. And if I'm being honest, I think part of that is because for me, sometimes church turns into more of a writing a sermon and showing up and giving a sermon than it is for seeing real-life people in front of me and partnering with them to bear the burden of those around us. To commit to discipleship, to commit to growing in our knowledge and our obedience of Jesus. To commit to the hard hard work of discerning the Spirit's leading, of keeping in step with the work of the Holy Spirit. But every week, we get in in a sense a reset button. We get in a sense a, a new chance. We get an invitation to come to the table. We get an invitation to once again celebrate our participation in Christ to remind ourselves of the burden that Christ bore for us, the new creation he has created that you and I exist in, in the world around us, starting here, teeming with possibilities of beauty and joy and love and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And to the extent that you're cynical about it, and to the extent that you're pessimistic about it, and to the extent that you wonder if it's true for you, is the extent that your imagination has shrunk. That your imagination has been so shaped and stomped on by the news, by your experiences, by the way people have treated you, Because as we come to the table, we come to a new world. And when we unite in prayer, we unite in a spirit more powerful than we could ever imagine. And when we find ourselves down, and when we find ourselves in the dumps, and when we find ourselves alone, these are, in a sense, illusions that the enemy has sent our way. Because you and I exist and are a part of one of, if not the most, miraculous things the world knows. The church. Brothers and sisters. Adults and children. Filled with the Spirit. Committed to living life together. To walking together. And as Paul would say about those who walk in the Spirit... Against, against such things, there, there is no law. Against such things, there is no imaginative ceiling. Against such things, there is nothing that can't be done. There is no love that can't be extended. There are, there's no darkness that can't be transformed. 
So let me invite you to join with me for another week or two weeks or three weeks or a year or five years or ten years of bearing our burdens, following the Spirit, of walking into the new creation that's been opened up for us on that Sunday morning when the tomb was empty and Jesus walked out.